your attendance here this morning, as has already been expressed, but I do want to make one slight correction or addendum, perhaps, to the uh, announcement Brother Taylor made earlier to come back at 6 o'clock this evening. This is the third Sunday of the month, and on the third Sunday of the month, we have our early bird singing which means I want to see you here at 5 o'clock this evening, if at all possible. Uh, the Texans already got knocked out last week, so you don't have the excuse of staying home and watching the AFC Championship game. And if I can be here and miss the beginning of the Packers game, you can be here too. So we hope to, to see you here this evening at, at 5 o'clock. I want to begin this morning by reading from our text, the first chapter of Mark's gospel. Rock read part of this already, but we're actually going to carry it down through verse number eight. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As both a preacher and a student of history, I am fascinated by some of the courageous witnesses we find in the church all down through the ages. There are a number of figures that I would have liked to have heard firsthand. I would have liked to have been a, a fly on the wall to experience these things for myself. I would have liked to have heard Hugh Latimer preach. Latimer was an English Roman Catholic bishop and after the Reformation, an Anglican bishop. And on one occasion, he preached a sermon that greatly offended Henry VIII. Now, if you remember anything about Henry VIII, you know that if you get on the wrong side of him, that's potentially dangerous. Even if you weren't his wife, it ended up badly for quite a few people. On the following Sunday, Latimer was ordered to come and to preach again and to give a public apology to the king. Well, as he got up and began his sermon, he addressed himself, and he said, Latimer, Latimer, remember that the king is here. Be careful what you say. And then he continued on again to himself. Latimer, Latimer, remember that the king of kings is here. Be careful what you do not say. And with that in mind, he proceeded to deliver the exact same sermon that he preached the week before, only with more enthusiasm. And for that sort of unflinching courage, he eventually was burned at the stake during the reign of Queen Mary. I would have liked to have heard Martin Luther speak at Worms. 
The Pope had issued a, a papal bull condemning some of Luther's errors, and Luther, never very much for tact, had responded to that by publicly burning the document. And so, in response, a big assembly, conclave, was called in the Holy Roman Empire. All the leaders of the church, all of the secular leaders, including the emperor himself, Charles V, with the goal of trying to get Luther to recant. They had some preliminary discussions about the, the technicalities of his teaching, but eventually the prosecutor dispensed with that. He got around to it, and he asked him if he would recant. Luther replied in part, this is the conclusion, I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. In the example that's probably dearest to my heart for a number of reasons, I would have liked to have heard David Lipscomb preach. Now, Lipscomb is a name that's probably familiar to some of you, if for no other reason than the school that he founded, the Nashville Bible School, is today a, a university that's named after him. Lipscomb was the editor of the Gospel Advocate for over half a century. He was probably the most prominent voice in Churches of Christ in the latter half of the 19th century and on up until his death in 1917. Well, during the Civil War, Lipscomb took a strong stance against Christians on both sides participating in the war. Because how could brothers in Christ, citizens of the kingdom of God, kill each other on behalf of their earthly country? Now, living in Tennessee, zeal for the Confederacy ran pretty high. And so he was denounced as a Yankee spy, an abolitionist, a traitor to his country, on and on. You can imagine how it went. At one point, a complaint was lodged with General Nathan Bedford Forrest, who sent a staff officer to hear Lipscomb preach and to determine whether or not his sermons were worthy of his arrest. Well, this staff officer came in and he sat down front and center, right on the front row, right in front of the pulpit, in uniform. But Lipscomb was undeterred. He preached just like he always would. That officer was moved to tears several times during that sermon. And at the end, as he was leaving, he said to one man in the congregation, I've not yet reached a conclusion as to whether or not the doctrine of the sermon is loyal to the Southern Confederacy, but I am profoundly convinced that it is loyal to the Christian religion. That's just the sort of preacher that John the Baptist was. And I would have greatly liked to have heard him Jesus himself said that among those born of women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. And he had the illustrious duty of being the herald for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in Mark's gospel, we just read it, but in contrast to the other gospel accounts, there are no lengthy birth narratives. There's no theological prologue. Mark just jumps right in here, and John burst onto the scene, fully formed here, preparing the way of the Lord. 
if we get, stand in the middle of a road, if we were to go out here, you look in one direction, you look in the other direction, what we realize is the road goes forward, the road goes backward. Well, we could say a similar thing about the way of the Lord that's being prepared here. It's rooted in what God's done in the past, but it reaches forward then into the future, into something new. So what we want to ask this morning, this way that John is preparing, what does looking in both directions down it have to teach us? Well, first of all, if we look backward, if we look into the past, we're reminded that God keeps his promises. Long before Jesus came into this world, God's people were taught to look forward to the new thing that God was going to do. He'd come and he would inaugurate a new age. He would liberate his people. He would establish his kingdom. God would take charge and he would set things right. A coming one would usher in that new age, that new epoch of God's activity. Well, that's what the opening of Mark's gospel is all about. It alerts us immediately here. That's happened. This story is all about the gospel, the good news, which was a term that was used in the wider Roman world when a new emperor was crowned. So in other words, against that background, what we've waited for, God at long last is becoming king. And he's done that particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ, as most of us probably know, is the translation of the Hebrew Messiah, literally the anointed one. That's the figure who all of these hopes for what God was going to do in his new age came to be invested in, this successor of David, the chosen one, the royal king who would come and, and reign on God's behalf. Referring to him as the son of God takes it up to an even higher level because in a Jewish context, this could be used as a synonym for Christ. The king of Israel is sometimes referred to as God's son. But to a Gentile audience, a Roman audience, Mark's original audience, this is an indication that this Jesus Christ is divine. So in other words, Jesus can bring God's kingdom precisely because he is indeed himself God. Mark's gospel is all about how God intervened in the world, establishing his reign through his son. And what we need to remember is this is exactly what the prophets had been looking forward to. This is what Israel had been praying for. This is what they had sung about in their hymns. This is the substance of the, the stories that parents handed down to their children. This is the culmination of all of those long, dark years of rebellion and exile. This is the climax and it says that God is finally at long last doing what he always said he was going to do to deliver his people. So this is a powerful reminder that God is faithful even when his people are faithless. We can trust God. He keeps his promises. 
In particular, we see how this story begins and that God fulfills his promise to send a forerunner to prepare the way. Now, Mark says in verse number two there that this is written in Isaiah the prophet, but really this is a combination of at least two, probably three, Old Testament text. Now, that's not the way we'd typically use scripture, but it was a common method of interpretation for Jews in the first century. And the idea is that all three of these texts are are united around a common theme of this forerunner, this figure who prepares the way for the Lord. Mark simply references Isaiah as the source because he's the most prominent example. He's where the bulk of the passage comes from. And in fact, you could say in a sense that Isaiah really is the messianic prophet. If you look through the prophets, no other figure looks forward to the day of the Lord, to Messiah coming more than Isaiah. So Mark's likely affirming that this story, this gospel, is the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision of renewal, of restoration in the last day. He applies all these to John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The first reference here comes from Isaiah, or from Exodus, pardon me, chapter 23 and verse number 20. Behold, I send an angel. That's what your translation probably says. It's what the English Standard Version says. But the word for angel in both Greek and Hebrew, is the same as the generic word for messenger. So in other words, behold, I send a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. John fulfills the role of the angel in the Exodus, the one who went before God's people and prepared the way for them in the wilderness. The second reference here comes from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So John fulfills the role of the messenger who would come in the last days to prepare God's people for his coming, for the day of judgment that he would bring. In the next chapter of Malachi, chapter 4 and verse 6, he says that this figure is Elijah the prophet. And of course, if we read a little bit further on in Mark's gospel, we would find that Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah. That's Mark chapter 9 and verse 13. The final reference here, and the primary reference, does come from Isaiah. Chapter 40 and verse number 3 specifically. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John is the herald of of a new exodus where God would triumphantly lead his people from exile into the promised land. So notice that Mark sets John's ministry in the context here of the fulfillment of Scripture, looking back to what's been promised. But I want you to notice how he's subtly, almost imperceptibly, modified these texts. If you look at Malachi, that messenger precedes God's coming to the temple. In Isaiah, that voice prepares the highway for the coming of God. But on the other hand, when we read it here in Mark, 
he indicates that these predictions are of Jesus' forerunner. In other words, Jesus is the one who brings salvation. Jesus is the one who does what the prophet said God was going to do. That's another indication. We're going to see more and more throughout this gospel that Mark is making it clear this Jesus is God. He's to be identified with him. So John's message is clear. Level the roads. Clear a path. Make them straight. Make them presentable. The Lord is coming. God has fulfilled his promise to send his forerunner, to send the Messiah. John the Baptist's ministry deals with that fulfillment of prophecy, looking backward. But it's also a new beginning. This way goes forward here from the wilderness. While those actions are, are rooted in the past, God's doing a new thing here. You can think about even the way that he describes it here as the beginning of the gospel in verse number one. Mark begins his story by announcing that this is the beginning. God is initiating something new here. So it has continuity with what God's done in the past. It's rooted in his promises and in his faithfulness, but it isn't just the same old, same old. This is something different, a new moment in the history of God's dealings with his people. This is the beginning of that long-awaited, long-promised salvation fulfilled now in Jesus Christ. Now, what exactly that way of the Lord is, is the thread that runs through the rest of the story. It will take reading the entire book to really figure that out. And in fact, it's a way that continues on because as Jesus' followers, we continue to follow that way. In fact, that's quite likely why, if you look at the book of Acts, the favorite term for the earliest Christians to refer to their movement is the way, because they're following in this way of the Lord. But just here, at the very outset, as we look down that way, what does John reveal to us about this new beginning? I think, first of all, we shouldn't miss just how strange a character John is. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. John's not making some sort of fashion statement here. I, I've owned a few camel hair jackets in my life, and if you've ever had one, they're, they're soft, they're plush, they feel good, and they're nice and warm and this is a rough garment. This is something that the poorest of the poor would have worn. And instead of fastening it here with one of the fashionable belts that would have been worn in the first century, he has just a simple leather thong tying it up. And his food's not very enticing either. If John invited you to go eat, his idea of a night going out to eat would have been going and picking up a few grasshoppers and then let's head over to the nearest beehive for dessert. This is all really strange stuff here. We find this odd. Well, what we need to understand is this was every bit as unusual in his day. No one else was doing anything like this. His dress, his lifestyle, this was all a protest against the status quo, against the Jerusalem establishment. He's rejecting the, the culture of his day for a life of radically following God. 
And he knew exactly what he was doing. That clothing, if you go back and you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, that's exactly the way that Elijah dressed. He wore a hair garment girded with a belt. But it's not just his figure that's striking. The message that he brought is equally radical. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. To begin with, how is this radical? It focused on baptism. Have you ever wondered why John is called the Baptist? Or more literally, the baptizer? I mean, yeah, on one obvious level, it's because that's what he was doing. But the reason that marked him out is because no one else was doing this. No one before him had done anything like this. It's unique. There are a few near contemporary practices that help us to understand the background here a little bit better. Jews employed water for purification from ceremonial impurities, uncleanness. Uh, Pools called mikvahs were employed for this purpose. And the way that they cleansed themselves was to immerse themselves, to uh, completely be baptized. That's the same word that's used. So John's baptism shared with those Jewish ritual washings, this idea of cleansing, a purification. There was also what we might call a, a baptismal movement of sorts at Qumran, that community out near the Dead Sea where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most scholars think this is the Essenes. Those at Qumran immersed themselves for purification too, but they also did something a little bit different. If you became one of them, if you joined the community, you were immersed then too. Then there's proselyte baptism. That is for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. They were immersed. But there's no evidence of that taking place, this Jewish proselyte baptism, until the late first century, early second century. So in other words, this might have come as a result of John's and Christian practices rather than the other way around. But the point is, all of these at least share a common background, a a general framework of what John's doing. All of them, like John's baptism, were immersions. All of them had this association with purification, with cleansing. But there are other really important differences. For one, John's baptism was administered. That is, in all the rest of these, you did it yourself. You dunked yourself in the water to be cleansed. John is baptizing other people, hence his nickname, the baptizer. This is weird. No one's done anything like this. Further, while it related to cleansing like those others, it operates here on a different level because those others were about ritual impurity, ceremonial uncleanness. This instead is an act associated with the last days of God coming in judgment. You need to prepare. You need to get ready for what God's going to do. His baptism is associated with repentance, with forgiveness, with establishing here God's people. John's baptism, like proselyte baptism, if it was practiced this early, was a one-time act, but here's where it gets really unusual. Proselyte baptism is administered to Gentiles so that they can become Jews. But John's administering his baptism to Jews. They needed to repent. They needed to be cleansed in order to get right with God. 
We can easily lose sight of this, but that is every bit as strange as baptism in itself. John is out here preaching that faithful Jews need to repent to prepare for what God's going to do. The setting of all this out in the wilderness is important. The wilderness is the place where God first formed Israel into a people after he delivered them up from Egypt. It's the place where he established his covenant with them. The wilderness is the place where God guided them, where God protected them, where they had to depend utterly and completely on him for their very lives. And the wilderness is the place where the prophets believed that one day God would come again in power. It's no coincidence that in the first century a lot of would-be messiahs gathered their followers out in the wilderness, drawing on this very same point. Thutis, for instance, and Thutis is mentioned by Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 as one of these would-be messiahs. Thutis gathered up a band of followers out in the wilderness not long before they were massacred by the Romans. Another fellow that Josephus tells us about, this was under Felix, an Egyptian prophet, so-called, gathered a band of rebels out there in the wilderness before they made an attack on Jerusalem that, of course, failed. That's probably the fellow that's being referred to in Acts chapter 21 when that Roman soldier thinks Paul is an Egyptian who stirred up some trouble. When Josephus records that story, he refers generally to a great number of imposters who, quote, persuaded the crowd to follow them into the wilderness, promising deliverance. In other words, what this background shows us, the wilderness is a symbol of hope, of deliverance, of renewal that comes from God. All the country of Judea, all Jerusalem were going out to him, Mark says. Now, no doubt that's hyperbole. Not literally every person was going out there. But part of the point is, this is rejecting the temple establishment. Where before you go to Jerusalem, you go here to the place where God's established the sacrificial system. You go here to a priest. God's now doing something new. To see what God is doing, his will for his people, you don't go to Jerusalem. You come out of Jerusalem, you go to the wilderness, you go and listen to John, and you respond to his preaching. And all of this adds up to the fact that God is creating, or better, recreating a people here. A people who would be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. See, Jews would have already considered themselves to be God's chosen people, to be part of his covenant people. But John says, don't trust, Mark says, John says too, don't trust in that. Don't trust in your lineage that you're a descendant of Abraham. Don't trust in your sacrifices. Don't trust in all the works of the law that you've done. John invites them instead to come as repentant sinners, to prepare their hearts for what God's going to do. Come to the wilderness. Re-enter the covenant with God. Rejoin God's people in repentance and baptism. Finally, of course, in all this, John pointed to one who was greater than him coming after them. John deflects all the attention on him from himself and he places it on 
the Messiah, on Jesus. And in fact, his status is even lower than the lowest slave. As he says here, there's one coming after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. The Talmud says that the disciple of a rabbi must do everything that a slave would do except remove his shoes because that's as low as it gets. That was the most menial task. Even those disciples were exempted from that. But John views himself so lowly compared to the Messiah that he says he's not even worthy to do that most menial task, to remove his shoes. John was a great prophet. No greater would it ever arisen, Jesus says. And most Jews believed, rightly, that prophecy had ceased 400 years before with Malachi. There hadn't been a prophet among God's people in centuries. That's part of his appeal. People recognized him as a prophet, and that's why they're filing out of Judea to go and to see and hear this new thing that God's doing. And yet, rather than drawing attention to himself, as a lot of us might have done, he realized that his only role was to function as a witness to Christ. So what can we take from this witness to the gospel? First of all, remember that God keeps his promises. Throughout scripture, God is always found to be faithful. He always does what he says he will do. Sending John, sending Jesus, is just one more example of the many that we could name. And that means we can trust God. That means we can and we should place our faith in him, rely on him and his promises because we know that he keeps them. What he says he'll do, he'll do. Secondly, we're reminded that God's people need to live penitent lives. Many of John's contemporaries thought that they were just right with God all because of their birth. They were Jews. They were God's chosen people. They trusted in their lineage or they trusted in their meticulous law keeping or they trusted that they'd made all the right sacrifices. John says they need to instead turn to God as repentant sinners. we can fall into that very same trap of thinking that we're automatically right with God. And we can do it for a lot of the same reasons. I could trust in my descent while my mama and daddy were Christians and my grandparents were Christians or you know, my daddy was a preacher and his daddy before him was a preacher on and on and on. So I, I know that I got it right all because of that. Or we could think that we're right because we go to church every Sunday. Or we could think that we're right with God because we go to the right church. Or because we understand baptism properly. Or because we live righteously, we keep the law. Well, maybe not righteously, but at least we're better than most of those people out there, right? There are any number of things we could place our trust in, but John confronts us with the truth that we need to repent too. Repentance isn't a one-time only act that we make when we initially become Christians, that we express our, our faith and our repentance in baptism. It's something that continues to characterize God's people. We live penitent lives. We acknowledge our weakness, 
our imperfections. We confess our sins and that we need God to act and to change us and to help us to bear these fruits worthy of repentance. It's a great gift that John gave them by preaching on sin and on judgment and on repentance. But we don't often think of it that way. We don't like to hear sermons about sin and judgment and repentance. But how can the gospel be good news if we don't ever realize that we need to be rescued from something? Finally, John reminds us to keep our focus on Jesus. It would have been very easy with all of these crowds flocking out to hear and to see John to make it all about him that he was the star of his own show here. And in fact, we know from parallel accounts that some of his disciples thought that way. They got a little bit jealous when Jesus started to increase and John started to decrease. But John didn't care about that. He realized that his only role was to point to and to glorify the Lord Jesus. We don't have... Even a fraction of the excuse John did to get the, the big head about ourselves. And yet we can focus on our own self-importance, our own self-worth, our own self-interest. We can glorify ourselves above anything else. Instead, John reminds us that our lives need to be about humbly serving him and pointing others the way to him. The question then to ask this morning before we leave is, have you placed your faith, your trust in that greater one to come? Have you turned to God in repentance? Have you been buried in the waters of baptism and in Christian baptism where not only do you receive forgiveness of sins, but you receive that gift of the Holy Spirit that John points to here, the, the promise of the new covenant that comes with those who are in Christ. If not, I want to urge you to take those steps to become part of God's people and to begin to follow Jesus on that way of the Lord this morning. Maybe you're here and you're already part of God's people, but like those first century Jews, you need to repent in order to be right with God. If that's the case, whatever your need may be this morning, we invite you now to come while we stand and while we sing.